It's a pleasure to worship the Lord with you, to gather in the name of Jesus. So we'll be in Isaiah chapter 60 today, if you want to turn there or scroll there or however you arrive there, that's where we will be. So a week ago, about, uh, Roger Federer was uh, the title holder of the 2017 Australian Open. Yes, Sally's very happy about that. I mean, I was happy too. It was good to watch. And and as he received that trophy and he held it aloft, you know, he was cheered by thousands of fans there at the arena and also millions on television. And not only did his performance give him global recognition, but he also took home about 3.7 million Australian dollars. So he was quite richly rewarded for playing a game, which is a pretty rare thing that you could be... Uh, you think about there's few in the world that could make money like that in a couple weeks for playing well. Anything. So that's pretty novel. And when you see someone who is recognized like that, it could perhaps make our efforts feel underappreciated or undervalued. I've never seen someone get a silver cup for being a great parent or for making a sacrifice or for someone making, you know, to get a million dollar uh, bonus for being just on time and doing a great job in retail. Like I just don't, I don't see that happening very often. Or uh, the sacrifices that parents have made, or even as a kid, you feel like I don't feel very valued in this house. I don't feel like w- what I feel or think matters for much. And we can begin to feel like we don't really matter. But you know, God sees everything. He is the one who makes every sacrifice worth it because he, re- he is a rewarder, the Bible says, of those who diligently seek him. People may not know how you diligently seek the Lord, but he sees that. And it says that his eyes go to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those who are loyal to him. He wants to show himself strong on behalf of you. And it is, and it's in realizing how insignificant we are in this world to think that the Almighty God has eyes for us, that He's looking for us, that he, He's looking upon you, and He cares about you and your situation, that we realize, wow, I am special. I am privileged. I have such grace given me by God that though I am insignificant in the world, and, and most people will not know my name, and generations from now may not even know a thing about you, but God knows you, and we have Him forever. So praise Him for that. Let's Let's just ask God to bless this time. Father, thank you for this word that you've given us today. Thank you for the scriptures that will not fail, that the things you have said will surely come to pass, and we can trust you, and that you do have eyes seeking to show yourself strong on behalf of those who are loyal to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would find such here. As we open your word, may you open our hearts to look inside and show us if there is wickedness, if there's need for repentance, if uh, you're calling us to, to obey you in an area, Lord, give us great boldness and faith to do that. We ask that you would speak to us through your word and minister to the kids as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So the context of where we are is God speaking to a people who he had brought very low. He brought his people out of Egypt, he made them a great nation, but they had turned their backs on him, and they had worshipped other gods. And just like Deuteronomy 28, 44 said, he said, if you forsake me, then instead of being the head, you're going to be the tail. 
You're going to be at the mercy of other nations. Instead of lending, you're going to be borrowing. You're going to be begging. And that's exactly what happened. They were like a tennis champ, once ranked number one, who was not even ranked anymore because he was so out of form. Like they were just humiliated. They, they had this great God who had given them tremendous exploits and victories. And yet now they were the, the cause of scorn and mockery. And people would walk by Jerusalem and they'd see the, the walls broken down and the gates burned to ash. And they would say, huh, what kind of God is that? What kind of people is this? The one who, who exalted themselves over us, now they've been brought low, and people laughed at that. Now, God in this chapter, he gives them promises way beyond restoration. He talks about like transformation, going far beyond what they had ever had, even in the golden days of Solomon. He was going to transform their nation. Ultimately, this will be fulfilled. It still has a future fulfillment during the millennial reign when Jesus comes back to earth and sets up his kingdom there. He's going to give them glory and prosperity and peace to people who were shamed and poor and powerless. God will not make your wildest dreams come true, but his plans for you are greater than you can dream. He has eternal purpose in the things that he allows, in the ways that he moves, and and it requires faith to walk in that, doesn't it? To say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you. And it's recognizing Christ as king, which leads to his glory and ultimately our exaltation. So we don't follow Jesus to be exalted, but if we humble ourselves, he will exalt us. He will lift us up. So Isaiah 60, verse 1, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people, But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. I was awakened many times as a boy by my mother's voice, rise and shine. She's one of those morning people, really happy in the morning. And it's like, because the sun's up and the sun's shining, we should get up too. It's time to get up. Like, it's 7.30. What are you doing in bed? And, and it's like, Jesus is the one, God is the one, it says the Lord will arise over you. So God is going to rise, so people, arise and shine. You shine, because God's caused the sun to shine, and your light has come. They were in darkness, and he was giving them light. He was giving them hope, hope that's seen in Christ. And ultimately, there's a future hope, right, that won't be taken away from us, one in heaven. God's people were in a dark place, when they were in captivity in Babylon, but that time was coming again that he would renew worship in Jerusalem and he would give them victory. He would purify his people, but they would become strong. And we know that Jesus, he is the light of the world. We see this verse uh, fulfilled in his coming. He is the light of the world, shining in the darkness. I've heard people compare our role as Christians to the moon's relationship to the sun that we we have no capacity for illumination within us, and because of the sun shining, we are to reflect God's glory. Now, while I agree that we don't have any luminary capacity, you know, there's no literal light emanating from us, just like a glove can't move unless there's a hand in it, but we are called to be the light of the world 
as Jesus is. We are called to shine like the sun because we are now filled with the Holy Spirit who shines through us. So we're not just reflecting the glory of God. I understand the analogy, but it falls short of the reality that we are to be filled with the Spirit and we are to shine. We read about this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Think about light and how it's used, that it's used to attract attention. If you ever fly on a plane, they say, oh, here's the, you know, the whistle and the light to attract attention. It attracts attention. It also can signal. If you're on a ship, you can send flashes of light. That will mean something to someone who understands it. I would just say, hey, there's a flashing light over there. I wouldn't know what it meant. Um, or, you know, if you're in a tunnel, it could be the light of the, at the end of the tunnel or perhaps an oncoming train. There would be different directions we could go with that. But it's to send messages. We have the Holy Spirit in us now. So we are to give a message of light and life to this world. We're in a dark world. And so the light of Jesus is to shine through us. And it's through our good deeds, deeds done for him, not to, not to promote ourselves, but to say, this is because of Jesus. And in Matthew 5, 14, Jesus spoke to his disciples. He said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So you don't light a candle and hide it. Of course, that would snuff it out. You light a candle for a purpose, to give you light. Jesus has given us life for a purpose, that our lives would be lived for him, And that as we do things for his glory in obedience to him, he gets the praise. It's like what light we have, we shine towards him so people can follow Jesus too. You know, in the temple, the light of the menorah was to shine continually. And they were supposed to use beaten oil for the lamps. So it wasn't pressed, it was beaten. And they would constantly, the priests would monitor that so that it was always shining in the most holy place. And so we, as Christians, have the Holy Spirit. He supplies this inexhaustible supply of oil, so to speak, that we can shine. So we may not feel like rising and shining, but God will give you the strength to shine. He'll help you to do that. Verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 60. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover the land, the dromedaries of Midian and Iphah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense. They shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Since the context is primarily with the Jews in mind in Isaiah's day, we're going to interpret it primarily with that in mind. However, there is application for us uh, personally um, and as Christians. It's important that we take care not to exchange promises God made with Israel from the church. Don't just plug the church in to these passages because, number one, it creates a lot of confusion. And two, it was spoken to a specific group of people 
at a specific time where there could be multiple fulfillments and applications. So it's applicable to us, but let's just not forget who it was spoken to. God was speaking to people who had lost family members because of war, who had been uprooted from their homes, who had been denied their inheritance in the land of Israel where they lived. And it seemed like there had been irreparable damage to family and things that they loved. It seemed like life was over. Okay, that's the, what the, I guess the condition where people were. You know the old fable about Humpty Dumpty, that all the king's horses and men couldn't put him together? Well, that's how they were. No one could put the nation back together. Who can do that? Can you organize that, have a work party, and just put a nation back together? No, especially when they're all scattered and in captivity. But yet God would do this. He would do this thing. He would cause them to gather together. He said that there would be a reuniting of family. And in this case, family members they didn't even know from Gentile nations. It's like a brother from another mother, except in this case, they had the same father. Same father, same king, and so they were united with family that they never knew they had. They would have light and gladness. Instead of being plundered, it says the wealth would come to them. Most people have played the game Monopoly here. Some people hate Monopoly. Some people think it's tolerable, you know, on those rainy days when there's really nothing else to do. But I think you would prefer to have the $200 bank error in your favor that you don't actually have to return, or even the $10 prize, second place in a beauty contest, over having to pay taxes on your railroads or having to go immediately to jail without passing go, right? We like the idea of wealth flowing to me. Like, yes, give me that $200. Yes, I'll take those taxes or that rent. Like, I, I want hotels so I can get more, right? This is how you win the game. And it talks in this passage of camels, gold, incense, flocks, rams. That was prime stock. He says, the stock is going to be coming to you. You're going to become wealthy and prosperous. Now, we naturally desire wealth because that means more for me, right? That makes sense. Uh, security. There's a lot of reasons why we might want something. It's because, well, I want this thing. Money will help me obtain that thing. Therefore, I want money. Riches and possessions have a way of stealing our hearts, making us proud. And it says in Psalm 62.10, if riches increase, set not your heart upon them. It's possible that when you get things, our hearts can be set upon them. We look to those things with affection. Now, God is able to supply our every need. Notice that these things, with the exception of camels, are all uh, appropriate sacrifices unto God. These were all things to be sacrificed, and at the end, it says that they would be on his altar. Did you notice that? So we think, oh yeah, all this wealth is coming in, all these rams and flocks and gold and incense. And he's like, they're for my altar. They're for me. And so when we see that the things that God's given us are his and for him, it changes the way that we handle them and if we look to them. Think about Peter, for instance. They fished all night. Why? Because they wanted fish. They, they wanted perhaps money or the trading they could have from the fish. But having not caught a fish all night, Jesus said, hey, let down your, your nets for a catch. 
well, we fished all night and haven't caught anything, but at your word, just because you're asking me, I'll let down the net. And what happened? It said the nets were so full, they couldn't even bring them in by themselves. They had to get their friends to help them. But what was Peter's response? Did he quickly sell them all? It says he left the boat, the net, the fish, even his family, and followed Jesus because he found that Jesus supplied everything he needed. Everything he looked for could be supplied through Christ. And so it wasn't about the fish, really. He realized that, oh, man, isn't Jesus able to give me much more than this? Isn't he able to daily supply my need? And so he followed him, and that's a good example for us. Isaiah 60, verse 8. Who are these who fly like a cloud, like doves to their roosts? Surely the coastlands shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. After captivity in Babylon, the nation of Israel did return. The Jews did to reclaim and renew their inheritance. The book of Nehemiah, it talks about all the the struggle that they went through to uh, rebuild the wall and how they had a tool in one hand and, and a sword in the other or a trumpet in one hand to alert people while they were working because the, the enemy, the Gentiles, were, were restricting the work. They were hindering them, trying to make them afraid. They tried to use political intrigue to stop it. So we know that this, therefore, has a, a future fulfillment, that the gates were not open day or night. They, once they built those gates, they shut the gates because of the dangers that were outside of them. So we see this will be a future day when people will come to Jerusalem, the wealth of the Gentiles will flow in, kings will flow in, and those gates will not be closed day or night. Have you ever heard of a king glorifying his people, especially those who had been unfaithful to him? I have never heard of such a thing. But that's exactly what God will do. People who were once unfaithful to him, he is going to glorify them and exalt them so that the kings are serving his people. Now, to a Jew in captivity, when you read, like, all the nations who don't help you, they're going to be destroyed, that's like, yes, please, bring on the Messiah. We're ready for this. We're ready to be served. That would be great. But it's, it's like, you see leaders give other leaders gifts, but the king is going to give gifts to his people, and they will be served. People came from all over the world to see the kingdom of Solomon and to hear his wisdom firsthand. And when Jesus is on the throne in Jerusalem, people will come from everywhere to see him and to praise him and to worship him. And honor will be had by Christ and his people. Because the more diversity that a king has, people from all over, every tribe, tongue, and nation that he has brought in, Jesus has saved, that's more glory for him because of his might and his power. Verse 11, I don't think the world has seen this condition where it says, therefore your gates shall be open continually 
They shall not be shut day or night that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. Can you imagine going to a country where there's no visa required, no checkpoints? Uh, You can just walk in and out at any time, no problem. And it won't be, there'll be no threat of stealing or pillaging. It'll be about, well, we leave the gates open so people can give. That's a totally different circumstance. People are worried about being plundered. They're worrying about danger coming into the country. And so they shut the gates. You, you've seen the queues when the new iPhones come out and the queue that goes around the building and everyone wants to obtain that phone. So they'll wait for hours and hours, pay the money to obtain something. But he's saying there'll be no queues. There's no time limits. There's no uh, restrictions at all for you to come and give anytime, day or night. Not worried about, there's no insecurity. Now, if someone I know is coming by my house, I'll leave the door open, unlocked, that is. I'll have the door closed, but not locked. But that's how it's going to be in the New Jerusalem. When Jesus is on the throne, when he is in charge, there's no fear of overthrow. Because remember the great salvation that he will bring when he returns. What a change that these the procession of kings and wealth will flow in of praise unto God. And that's the kind of access that we have with God through Jesus Christ right now. That we have fellowship with God at any time, 24 hours a day. There's no queues. There's no waiting list. It's not like trying to get an appointment where it's booked months in advance. You can talk to the King of Kings about your issues right now, and he is ready and willing to hear you. And it says if we trust him before we ask, he even knows what we're going to ask him. He knows our needs. So it's a good thing to ask ourselves, when I enter God's throne room of grace, is it primarily to receive or to give? Do we ascribe to God the praise and thanks that he is worthy of for all that he's done for us? If you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 68, starting in verse 32, we read how wise people, those who fear the Lord, will ascribe strength and praise to God. They'll give him the glory that he is worthy of. It's not a, what have you done for me lately, but God, you've done everything for me, and I'm nothing without you. Totally different perspective. Psalm 68, verse 32. It says, Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord. Selah. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. Oh, God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. So as a child of God, someone who's been born again and having received the Holy Spirit through faith and we've repented and trusted in Christ, he gives strength and power to you. And so we are to ascribe power and strength to him and to give him blessing. God's greater than Jerusalem because it's he who makes Jerusalem the house of peace. Just like it's the altar that sanctifies the gift, the gift is not greater than the altar. The giver 
is the one who we, God is the giver. Should we, should we regard his gift that he gives more than him? No, we should regard him. And in the same place, he is greater than his holy places because he is holy. He's the one who makes it so. Isaiah 60, verse 13. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. In Scripture, many times, God's people that he establishes, they're compared to trees. Psalm 1. It says that the one who delights in the law of the Lord, he will be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. In Psalm 52.8, it says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. Now, it's possible, and I would say likely, that there will be trees that beautify the sanctuary of God. Since this follows directly the incoming of the Gentiles, and with those other verses in mind, I think it refers also to the worship and the presence of Gentiles from all over, whether they're from Lebanon, the Cyprus, the box tree. There's this great variety in the people of God who worship him. And it's so cool when you go to Cambodia or to Australia and, and people that you've never met who are praying to, to God and who worship Jesus Christ and who honor him as Lord in their own tongue and in their own way. It is wonderful to see like, wow, I have family here. I had no idea. I can't even communicate very well with them, but we are loving and worshiping the same God. They've been saved as soundly as I have by the grace of God. And this adds to God's glory. In Revelation 14, 6, it says that the everlasting gospel is for every nation, tribe, tongue, family. It's for everybody. It's offered freely to all. And it will be called, it says, they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. We read in Peter that we are like living stones in the church, that God has put us together, assembled us. And so the church, I believe, is included here where it says, and they shall call you the city of the Lord. That is the place where God dwells. And even as we are called to be a house of prayer because we're filled with the Spirit, we are God's house individually and corporately where he has put us together with different callings and abilities. He's given us different gifts, but all to be used for his glory. Isaiah 60, verse 15. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. You shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob, Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, and instead of stones, iron. I will also make your officers peace and your magistrates righteousness. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates peace. 
Isn't this quite a contrast? He said, people forsook you. They hated you. They wouldn't even go through you. They would avoid you. But now I'm going to make you an eternal excellence. Desirable for eternity. That's quite a change. And this passage, it harkens back to what we read in Isaiah 49, verse 23, where it says, Kings shall be your foster fathers and queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they will shall not be ashamed who wait for me. So there's no shame in those who wait for the Lord, who trust in him. And just like those uh, the, the 24 elders around the throne who cast their crowns at the feet of the Lamb of God who lives forever, Jesus Christ. So when people, should they prostrate themselves before you, it's like, you know, that is only, only one person's worthy of that, and that's Jesus Christ. That's the God who's made all things. We aren't worthy to receive worship from men. Instead of fostering pride, it would really provide a deeper realization of God's power and his goodness because it says there, you shall know that the Lord, I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Someone comes and falls prostrate before you. It would be foolish to think, well, well, yeah, finally people are getting the picture. I've been waiting for this. This is great. Uh, no, it says, in that moment, you'll know that I'm the Lord. You'll realize that I am the king, that I have done this. You didn't deserve this. You couldn't have made it happen. I've done it. And so they would praise the Lord and say, oh, Lord, this is amazing. What you've done, not that someone's, uh, you know, apologizing for hating me, but God, you are awesome. And it's so good for us to attribute everything that's good in our lives to God. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. God called him. He said, my servant Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And Daniel interprets the dream and says, well, there are, there are bad days coming for you, O king, because you have been lifted up with pride. Perhaps if you humble yourself before God, there'll be a lengthening of your time of prosperity. And there was a day about a year later when the king is walking through those hanging gardens or whatever beautiful thing that he had crafted and done. He says, isn't this glorious Babylon something that I've built for my majesty? And it's like at that moment, God said, the wor- you are judged by what you just said because it shows your heart. And at that moment, his senses left him. And for seven years, he was like a beast, senseless, until his, his sense returned to him. And what did he do immediately? He says, I praised God who lifts up kings and he puts them down. He is able to humble the proudest. And that's God. He does it in his way. It says there, the mighty one of Jacob. Notice it said Israel before, but it says Jacob here. The heel catcher, the supplanter chosen by God by grace. And he was given that new name, Israel, which means he will rule with God. And it's a picture of our how our change is to be when we're born again. Instead of being a supplanter, taking glory and honor for ourselves, that we will rule with God because he is gracious and good. And he's saying, you're my son, you're my daughter. During my recent travels to Israel, I've gone a few times over the past years. Every time there were some reports of violence. I didn't feel threatened at any time. But the passage, it says that a land marred with violence, 
will be a place of unity and peace where there won't be any reports of violence. It says their walls will be called salvation and their gates praise. I think we can say that this too is something that is in the future. The fulfillment is when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom. But do you know that each one of us, we have walls and gates? We have them. Those are the things that you trust in. Those are the things that you look to in this life. If you trust in Jesus, he will be your salvation. He will be your praise. But if we look to worldly things, ultimately they'll collapse without strength. If you have any doubt about this, in Deuteronomy 28.52, there's this very clear connection that God makes between your walls and gates and the things that you trust. It says, They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls, in which you trust, come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you and all your gates throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. Again, saying, if you depart from serving me, if you depart from loyalty to me, this is what will happen. The gates and the walls that you trust, they're going to be scaled. They're going to be destroyed. Everything that God makes will stand. He's a restorer of souls. It's just cool. Walls, salvation. Gates, peace. Verse 19. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light. And your God, your glory, your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Also your people shall all be righteous, they shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. We rely upon the sun to see. A time is coming when the light of the world, Jesus Christ, will outshine the sun. The sun will become completely unnecessary, literally. This, of course, spiritually has come already through Jesus Christ, the light of the world, and the Holy Spirit who's within us. We do read in Revelation of the New Jerusalem, in 20, chapter 21, verse 23, the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. How cool is that? The Lamb is its light. This passage in Isaiah, it has fulfillment with the Holy Spirit coming on Pentecost and, and ever since. That our lives are not to be governed by seasons or the time of day or by any external thing, but by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. He is to guide us. It's not just a law, external set of rules that we try to follow to please God. Now he has given us a new heart and he's written his law upon that heart. And he's given us the power both to will and to do the things that he asks us. So it doesn't matter whether it's day or night, we can awake spiritually out of sleep. It's like it's high time to, to wake up. We sang the song, you know, wake up the saint. It's high time to arise out of sleep. It's high time to be about the Lord's business. It's in celebrating our Savior that turns our mourning to gladness. It causes us to find the highway of holiness in a dark land. When you don't know what's the right course of action, 
looking to Jesus and the light of his word, which is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, we can know what's the right choice to make in honoring him. We can rejoice whether we're in a dungeon at midnight. Remember Paul and Silas singing praises to God? It says, and the other people heard them. Whether we're inside the belly of a great fish and we've been there for days and we think we're going to die like Jonah, or he looked to God and he repented in that place. Whether we're in a den of lions or a fiery furnace, we have God who will walk with us, who will protect us and hold our hand. Whether we're shipwrecked on an unknown shore at night and we get bitten by a viper, (laughs) we can rejoice in the Lord and be used to heal others like Paul. Or even if your life is taken, you can rejoice in your Savior as Stephen did when he looked and he said, I see the heavens opened. And I see Jesus. You know, there's one promise I've seen God fulfill, and that's establishing me and my family in Australia. Uh, It really came out of nowhere. It wasn't my plan to come to Australia. But God's plans are much better and amazing than mine. And there were, there were, I guess, impossibilities at every turn. It seemed like it was all, there was no chance that it could happen. But believe it or not, God used a fallen tree that we transplanted at church to, to confirm his word, the thing that he spoke to me. So if we could have a couple of pictures, it's, it's just a little fun we can have. Um, you get to see the place. It's not the most maybe pretty place in the world. This is where I grew up. Okay, this is uh, East County of San Diego. My house, the house I grew up in, is over in this area, right around there. And uh, I like what Les said. He's like, where are the trees? Um, Not a whole lot of trees where I'm from. There are trees there, as we'll talk about. And this is the church that I went to in my adult life which had moved many places. And uh, as I I was a youth pastor there and did building maintenance, if we can go to the next slide, um, the building has since been sold. Uh, So I was, that was the facility. It's been sold and now it's a school, but it looks very much the same. And so one of the, there were a lot of ficus trees in pots. I don't know why. They were just there. And uh, it was my job to look after them and, one day, these trees, I don't think they were designed, I don't believe God designed these trees to be in these pots. The pots were pretty small. One of them broke and it fell over. And it was like, what are we going to do with this tree? It's kind of big. Well, why don't we transplant it? No loss. We, As it is, it's just going to die. And so it laid there for a day while we tried to figure out what to do. And then we said, well, you know, we'll dig a hole and we'll just see if it grows. No loss if it dies. So we we... Lash, put, drew, dug a hole, watered it, lashed some ropes to it to kind of hold it up. And for a long time, it looked very bad. And it was, but, but ultimately it did stand. And it became a real topic of conversation with a friend of mine who I would pray with on a weekly basis. We'd pray several times a week. And, uh, 
and around that time I was talking about Australia and moving to Australia and he saw the tree beginning to take out, to, to grow as confirmation that the Lord was going to move our family and that he was going to establish us in Australia. And I had been in Australia for two years and I went back to visit the church and the first thing he said to me was, hey, have you seen your tree? And I'm like, no. I knew what he was talking about. So I went out and looked and the tree was big. It had grown quite well. And he's like, see, God does exactly what he says. He said he was going to do it. We didn't know how he was going to do it, but there it is. And, and I checked to see if it's still there, and it is. If I could have the next slide, I'll show you. So the tree that was once right here and about this big is now that tree up there. So it's a great object lesson of how God, when he has a plan, he He will keep his word. And the funniest thing, I never knew this until I actually checked it out. I said, is that really, we always call it a ficus tree. Is it a ficus tree? Would you believe that the name of that particular tree is ficus benjamina? <laughs> My name is Benjamin. Come on. I'm like, God, you are ridiculous. How do you do this? Come on. But that's God. That's what he does. He knows your name. He knows the things that he has planned for you. They're not your plans. But he will accomplish them in his time and in his way, and you can trust him. If he if he cares enough to make that tree grow in a place where there aren't many trees, he can establish you to do whatever he wants to do, wherever and whenever. The passage concludes with, also your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. I don't know much about planting stuff. I mean, I, I give trees away because I'll just kill them, ultimately. But... uh when God plants you, he knows what you need. He says, my planting. I created this tree to grow. I plant it in a good spot. I'll supply the nutrients that it needs to grow and the water. It's on me, and we can trust him. Now, you may think you may need a fruitful male and female at a minimum to create a great nation. But notice, it says here, God's able to take a little one and make a thousand. He can take a small one and make a great nation. Who is this one? Jesus. He was single all through his life on earth, and yet God through him has made a nation of believers. We are his people from one person, the Son of God. Titus 2, verse 14, it says of our Savior, it says, He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, in the King James, it says a peculiar people. And that doesn't mean weird, okay? That's the way we typically use it. Like, I can, because I'm a peculiar person, I can just act weird and, and have license to be just a total flake. But it says here that in the, the Strong's Concordance, being beyond usual, special as one's own. So peculiar, meaning unique, but mine. 
something that is distinct from others, but it's beyond usual. Not an ordinary nation. No, we are made a nation supernaturally through Christ. And when we acknowledge God and we praise him, we can arise and shine. Like he says, he says, arise and shine. The day spring is shown in your hearts. You shine for me. I'll shine through you. It's my shining. If you could turn, we'll close with 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 6. One Peter two, starting in verse six. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture: Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So we as Christians, we who have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, we are his chosen generation. We are his holy nation. And that is phenomenal. He's brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is why we arise and shine. Not because the sun is up. It's because Jesus has purchased us and because God loves us. We have obtained mercy and favor from God that the almighty God would dwell in you and have fellowship with us is amazing. So let us rejoice in that. We have been chosen by God. We were not a people, but now the people of God. And it doesn't matter if there's a lot of us or a few of us. God can take one and create a nation out of that. So in obedience to Christ's command, on the first uh, Sunday of the month, we do receive communion together. It's a time to remember and to proclaim the death of Christ until he comes. Uh, it's a sober time where we consider the price that Jesus paid for our sins. It's good and fitting that we would examine our hearts to, to repent of sin. The Bible says that if we say we have no sin, we are calling God a liar. All of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And just to affirm our repentance and our humility before him. And, and we're not, none of us are worthy to receive of Christ. None of us are worthy to be forgiven, to even identify with Christ. He is so holy and righteous. And yet he has commanded us to do this. So we do it with joy, knowing that this is his will for us as his people to unite around his table and to admire in wonder the love of God that he demonstrated by sending Jesus, as it says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love. So if I could have the uh, team come forward, we'll uh, join together in a song. While they are playing, 
please feel free to come up and take of the cup and the, the bread, uh, symbolic of the broken body that was Christ on the cross and his blood that was shed to be a payment for our sins. And if you are born again, it is for you to, to join together with us. Everyone is welcome. Just as Jesus says, whosoever will come. We're also told just not to eat unworthily, meaning that we're kind of, we're not born again, but we kind of want to fit in. We don't want people to be wondering about us, and so we'll take. Don't do that. Let's uh, be those who humble ourselves before God and we receive of his gift. Because what a salvation we have through Jesus. What a future. What hope. What love. Let's thank him. Father in heaven, thank you for the love that you have shown us through sending Jesus Christ. Thank you for the light that he's brought into our lives. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding of your word, who empowers us to honor and obey you. Lord, everything in this world, everything we possess, everything we see, it is yours and for you. Thank you for purchasing us with the blood of Jesus and giving us a hope and a future that no one can steal away. For we are in your hands and no one can snatch us out of your hands. Thank you that nothing can separate us from your love, that no matter where we are or what we've done, you have the power to forgive and the desire to restore. So Lord, we pray that you'd be honored and glorified as we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.